мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. Президент Путин Do not allow to start in Europe what could be the worst war since the beginning of the century. So Europe is at war, and everything feels different today. The full-scale military conflict we've been warned about and fearing, if not quite believing, for the past few weeks is real and present and happening right now. Bombs are falling and people are fleeing and dying in the democratic European nation of Ukraine at the hands of Vladimir Putin and his Russian invaders. Nobody knows how long this war will last or how this story ends. But for now it's hard to read about, talk about, think about much else, including on this podcast. I did have a completely different episode of Westminster Insider planned for this week. It was actually really good and hey, maybe you'll get to hear it someday. But for now, I just want to talk about Russia. Russia and Britain, and a shared history stretching back centuries, which this morning feels like it's at something close to its lowest ebb. The threats are flying, and the risk of further escalation feels very real indeed. But there can be few nations with whom, over the past 200 years at least, UK relations have fluctuated quite so much. On multiple occasions in the 19th and 20th centuries, Britain and Russia fought side by side all over Europe. And on multiple occasions, too, relations collapsed disastrously and left both sides on the brink of outright war. My guest this week can speak to all of that and a whole lot more besides. As a politician, as a diplomat, as a businessman and as a historian, David Owen, Lord Owen, has accrued an unparalleled wealth of experience of Russia and a deep understanding of its long-term strategic goals. He's 83 years old now, but the mind is as sharp as ever and packed with historical insights. As the UK Foreign Secretary in the late 1970s, he was the first British minister to visit the Soviet Union in years. And he then really went for me on the discussion which we'd had with Brezhnev about Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. As a diplomat in the early 1990s, he was the EU's negotiator at the conference for the former Yugoslavia. Yeltsin was extremely helpful. The trouble was he was drunk. As a businessman, in the early 2000s, he chaired the international division of the former Russian oil company, Yukos, although he severed all business ties in Russia after Putin's first invasion of the Crimea. And uh, who was at the state banquet at Buckingham Palace but Putin? And as a historian, he last year published Riddle, History and Enigma, a compelling history of the past 200 years of British-Russian relations. We were very, very, very worried that Stalin could engage us in a nuclear war for a period. And now I think we're right back into that picture. What can we learn today from the way these two great nations' histories have intertwined? How does the current crisis in Ukraine look with a little historical perspective? And what does one of our most experienced former diplomats make of the way Putin is acting today? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet David Owen, 
and reflect on how 200 years of British-Russian relations have led us to where we are today. The first thing that struck me about UK-Russian relations is, for all that adversarial nature, just how often we fought on the same side. As long ago as 1827, when Greece fought and won its long-cherished independence from the Ottoman Empire, it was British and Russian forces together who helped them do it. Britain had been led to the brink of war in Greece by Prime Minister George Canning, but he died in office a few months before the crucial Battle of Navarino took place. David Owen takes up the story. Canning couldn't accept that Greece should not be allowed to become a fully independent country and that it meant confronting the port or the uh, Ottoman Empire who were basically opposed to Greek independence. And steadily and in a very effective way, Canning brought Russia around to believing that this was something that they should support And so Admiral Codrington was appointed as the head of the joint fleet, uh, the Russian admiral and a French admiral. The Ottoman navy had been strengthened by bringing up the Egyptian naval force, and that came into the uh, Bay of Navarino. And eventually a battle took place, and it's an amazing battle last great victory of navies under sail. Codrington had served under Nelson in the Battle of Trafalgar, and he used some of the same techniques of putting the ships alongside and then uh, putting sailors over into the opposing ship. It was a stunning victory. Uh, The 60 ships of the Port Navy were locked up and sunk And uh, it was a great victory. It celebrated in the streets of London, celebrated in Moscow and celebrated in Paris. The only place it was not treated as a great victory was in the British government, where the Duke of Wellington was a very strong influence. And they apologised to the port for defeating them. Most extraordinary. If Canning had been alive, it would have been sold to the British public, they needed no encouragement as one of our great naval victories. As far as Russia was concerned, having just brought them on board for being uh, an ally, they saw London effectively disowning Codrington's great victory. Why do you think the British government was trying to distance itself from its own naval performance? The Duke of Wellington and his brother, Wellesley, Uh, who was Viceroy of India at one time, had this very strong view that Russia was opposed to British uh, involvement in India and was ultimately a great threat. And they developed the great game in which Russia and Britain were fighting each other for influence in India. I personally think it's grotesquely overwritten. There were certain differences of view about Russia, and no doubt if they could have been able without price to get India, they would have liked it. But they had no, in my view, serious intention of taking Britain on for a fight in order to take control of India. The other crucial moment in 19th century Anglo-Russian relations, alongside the Battle of Navarino and the so-called Great Game over India, 
took place in the Crimea. In 1853, just 25 years after the two nations had fought side by side with such spectacular success at Navarino, they found themselves in direct conflict. Russia was once again going to war with the Ottoman Empire, but this time, amid vague aspirations about keeping a balance of power in Europe, Britain and France lined up against them. Palmerston was Foreign Secretary during that time, a lot of it. Initially, I think he was tempted to try and follow Canning's line of keeping the Russians on board, but he failed to do that, was not given sufficient support, and then threw himself behind the policy of supporting the port and lining up with the Ottoman Empire. The conflict is largely remembered in Britain now for the disastrous charge of the Light Brigade, as immortalised by Alfred Lord Tennyson, and for Florence Nightingale's tireless work with the wounded soldiers in Constantinople. But in Russia, Crimea is remembered only as a crushing military defeat. I think it was a great mistake. I don't think Britain should have got involved in the Crimean War. It's basically a French-Russian battle. And if we had wanted to stay involved, well, it would have been better to do it with a naval force in the Black Sea and not with our military. And I think I would say there are a growing number of people who question the validity of British participation in the Crimean War. By the start of the 20th century, the pendulum that is the Anglo-Russian relationship had swung back the other way. Britain was now increasingly worried by German militarisation, and so in 1907 entered into a triple entente pact with Russia and France. Seven years later, British and Russian forces were fighting a common enemy once more. Germany spent quite a lot of time trying to butter up relations with Russia. They didn't like the idea of Russia coming in, French spent quite a lot of good diplomatic effort in ensuring that Russia did come in on our side. And we did have Russia as an ally from the start of the war until about 1916, when they became very weakened by their internal problems and the rise of Lenin's forces. Russia's exit from the war in 1917, following the Bolshevik Revolution, immediately soured relations again with Britain and powerful voices in Westminster began pushing for military support for the counter-revolutionary White Army in their struggle against the Communist Reds. Lloyd George brought back, against the Conservative coalition partners' wishes, Churchill into the Cabinet, and Churchill immediately started to argue that we should support the Whites against the Reds, the uh, anti-Leninist forces in Russia, and there was a very strong case for doing it. He did it very passionately. The problem really was that once the 1418 war ended, there was really no stomach for another war. Churchill, of course, always had a stomach for war <laughs> and was ready to go on. And, uh, you know, in many ways, his perception was correct. It could have come out differently. If it had come out differently, of course, the whole history of Russia would have been different and you wouldn't have had a communist Russia. So there were big stakes. One time, the Americans were supportive. And um, it's interesting, two American presidents recently have claimed that uh, America never fought Russia. Well, they actually did fight Russia in uh, 1918, 1919. But they, too, once the Paris Treaty was over, 
uh, and the US president went back, he made it clear that he was not going to go on fighting. Lloyd George had to tell uh, Churchill very bluntly to sort of almost grow up. He, he did not think that it was wise to continue. And, of course, it's important because Churchill comes back into the picture in a very, very substantial way. He certainly does. You hardly need me to tell the story here. But in June 1941, barely a year after Churchill became Prime Minister, at the height of the Second World War, German leader Adolf Hitler broke his promise to Stalin and invaded Russia. Britain and Russia were back on the same side yet again. But Churchill immediately saw that this must be more than a mere pact of convenience. I think in many respects this is Churchill's finest hour, actually, that he had the perception to understand that we had to be more than just sort of siding with Russia in the battle uh, against Germany. We had to be allies. We had to be lock them in. We had to really try and form a really close relationship. And that was against the advice of some of the leaders of the Conservative Party. Senior Conservative colleagues tried to get him to water down the depth of feeling that he was trying to arouse of a real alliance with Russia, and he turned it aside. He said, in this battle with Germany, we have to have every asset we can. We have to build a relationship with Russia, and I don't retract anything I've said about Soviet Bolshevism and in his speech, the Russian people, but I, we will support you. And he did, and he kept the... Russian convoys, the Arctic convoys going for as long as possible, and they were absolutely crucial in supplying food and armament for the siege of Leningrad. And when I was doing business in Russia, I would sometimes remind the older generation of that was our closest relationship. And they didn't remember it. And they re Stalin t played it down, to be honest. He didn't want to be beholden to anyone. But even he was grateful for it. The it did bind the relationship. And uh, easy to forget, but of course, always Stalin wanted Churchill to open a second front. So he considered his was the first battle against Germany. He wanted us to open up a battle. Churchill d did not want to cross the channel if he could avoid it. But eventually D-Day came and it was an extraordinary assault and its outcome was never certain. But when victory came, Stalin wrote to Churchill one of the most touching letters, really. He implied that he'd been wrong in urging an early fight and that it was an amazing victory. And indeed, D-Day was an extraordinary victory. And he was, was a, the only real message Churchill got from Stalin throughout the war. Did the two men actually rather like each other? <laughs> it's a very often asked question that nobody quite knows. I mean, I think Churchill, when he was engaged on a project, everything was dropped. You know, it's this project was to build good relations with Russia, to fight the Germans as an allied force, and to recognise that full-hearted involvement in Russia was going to be crucial to getting a victory. And so it was. We in this country often forget. We talk about our own casualties, and understandably, and Americans talk about theirs. But they are as nothing to the Russian casualties. 
And for the Russians, this was a great sacrifice and a great victory against the odds. And even now, when you look at events in Russia today, it's still influencing Russian opinion for good or ill. Was it strange for Britain to suddenly be on the same side as Russia again in, in, in the Second World War, given presumably relations through the 1930s with, with Stalin's regime had been pretty frosty at best? Well, in 1942, I was four years old. And if I left any food uneaten on my plate, my mother would say, think of the poor, starving children in Russia. And it was a very emotive time. And I, I think that it just is a huge gap in getting British people to understand the level of uh, casualties, the depth. I mean, the German panzers got to the outskirts of Moscow. The deep and lasting impact of the Second World War upon the Russian psyche was ultimately brought home to Owen in vivid style by his opposite number as Foreign Affairs Minister, Andrei Gromyko. When I went to Moscow as Foreign Secretary in 1977, relations had been not very good. Nobody had been for over six and a half years. When I stepped down off the plane at the bottom of the stairs was Gromyko. None of us realised that he would want to make the visit a success. He was, that was a symbol. And I drove in with him, and as we got into the outskirts of Moscow, he pointed to these iron crosses, really, two bits of steel crossed over, like a much bigger version of a tank trap. And this is still, you can see it, and it marks the closest point uh, to the centre of Moscow, that the German forces came. And Gromyko said to me, you're criticising me for not being more adventurous, more helpful in mutual and balanced force reduction negotiations. And I said, yes, I do feel you should do more. He said, this is the reason. If you're a Russian and you've lived through this experience, you're not going to take any risks ever again with Moscow. And it's these little ways that you begin to understand the depths of feeling and the differences of approach between countries. And it's why foreign secretaries should travel and build relationships between people who, countries which we may not like, appreciate, or may even be at the edge of war with. Churchill, by the end of the war, has already got his eye on the post-war period and he can see, can't he, that, that the Soviet Union then is going to be the next big threat Yes, his great speech in Fulton, Missouri, when he used the expression the Iron Curtain for the first time, it's actually a speech about how we need a strong United Nations which had just been created in San Francisco. Uh, He went there, Truman took him by train from Washington and said he had to accompany him because that was his own home state. It was a a very far-reaching speech and... It's a strange thing that Churchill had this ambivalence about Russia. At times, he was very much in favour of working with them, and he never quite gave up that. And even that Iron Curtain speech was hoping that the UN could bring in a better world and a better dialogue. And when he came back as prime minister in 1951, he immediately started to probe the case for him going to Moscow to have a dialogue with Stalin about nuclear weapons and we knew that Russia was starting to develop nuclear weapons. 
We think of the Cold War period as, as obviously being a time of, of very poor relations between Britain and the Soviet Union. Was it actually much more up and down than that? Well, we developed in 1946 uh, the policy of containment, which was then built into the NATO treaty. And containment was a very clever policy and wisely thought through, advocated by uh, an American diplomat who's very famous, but actually was also advocated in my book, reveals by a British diplomat called Roberts, who was writing exactly the same time uh, back to London, influencing Ernie Bevin, who was then the foreign secretary, just at the same time as the American diplomat was influencing Truman, President Truman. So it became very much an American-British project, NATO. And, you know, Truman is another amazing politician. In 1945, he made a speech, you know, we've won the war, I'm going to bring the boys home. The most wonderful slogan for a politician to say, you know, the war's over, you're going to have your men back. And then a year later, 1946, he had to go to the American people and say, the situation is so bad with Russia and the dangers of them taking up arms again, but this time against us. So the American GIs have to stay in Europe. And it's been a remarkable example of American foresight that under successive presidents and foreign secretaries of state, America have held US troops on the ground in Europe. Owen's first job in government was as a naval minister in the late 1960s, at the very height of the Cold War. When I was minister for the Navy, I was the duty officer in the summer of 1968 when we all knew that Russia was poised to invade Czechoslovakia and uh, left the Ministry of Defence at 9 o'clock and I was told there was no chance of any attack that night. At three o'clock in the morning, they rang me up in my home to tell me the invasion had started. <laughs> There's a lesson there for us today. For Lord Owen, the story of Western European diplomacy towards Russia and the Soviet Union during the latter half of the 20th century is essentially a triumphant one, reaching its climax with the warming of relations with President Gorbachev and the subsequent fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, there's so much nonsense talked about the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall fall was the result of a serious policy of detente in which you tried to push hard on, against Russia, but you also kept an open dialogue wherever you could. And the reason the Berlin Wall fell was many heroes. Of course, the biggest one is Marshall, General Marshall himself, who provided the money for Europe's civilian uh, catching up after the war, but it was also a great figure in the military advice to Eisenhower. And then you saw the whole Willy Brandt and the whole Ostpolitik and various British governments. We picked a very high level of defence spending through the 50s into the 60s. Ernie Bevin was one of the creators of NATO and he, when the Foreign Office came in with some wording which was softening the the wording, he said, I don't want any of this softening of the wording. I want it absolute clarity. I want this as a military alliance. I want to be sure that America are fully committed 
and we must give them the key roles of being the supreme allied commander of Europe, and that will overcome all the problems that Woodrow Wilson had in 1921 with Congress. And uh, so I think that we learnt a lot, and we built that relationship of NATO. It's his seeing now today, as I speak, NATO has handled the problem of Putin and his invasion of Ukraine with great skill. And uh, I think the British government has done extremely well by realizing that you have to work with America and your European allies. We had to bring Germany on board for tough economic sanctions against Russia. Not easy for them. And you see, NATO can never be judged on its own. It has to be seen as the manifestation of a spirit that was built up during the Second World War, in which America felt a responsibility, even militarily, for trying to bring peace in Europe. What were your own memories of uh, of dealing with Russia while you were Foreign Secretary, Lord Owen? You, you said you travelled over there. Did, how, how did you find relations when you were there? My first visit with Gromyko and with Brezhnev, we signed a treaty about nuclear weapons. I, it was a gesture, really, but it served their interest at that time to boost relations. So I, of course, went along with it. I was very pleased. And I was... Um, glad to see and meet and discuss these issues with Brezhnev, not just with Gromyko. But most of my time was with Gromyko. And I remember he asked, did I want to go to the ballet at Bolshoi or to a folk song evening? It was perfectly clear that he wanted to go to folk song evening. I'm actually very fond of ballet. But I, I said, OK, let's go to the folk song evening. And it was more intimate, and I don't think I had my interpreter, and certainly I was relying on his interpreter. And he then really went for me on the discussion which we'd had with Brezhnev about Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. There had been the Helsinki Final Act in 1975, and I think Gromyko had persuaded the Russians to sign up for it on the understanding that the Baltic states would stay in Russian sphere of influence. And I was luckily well-briefed, and I argued very strongly back that we could not accept that, that the Baltic states had the right after uh, due time, and certainly with persuasion and influence by us, to become democratic countries and independent, sovereign countries, and even possibly members of NATO. It was a very tough conversation, but you could see, here we are, we're talking about 77, and it was uppermost in their minds and let's be under no illusion whatever what Putin is outrageously doing at this very moment in Ukraine. Were it to be successful and not harmful to Russia, they would turn and try and do the same to Estonia, and Latvia and Lithuania. What Putin is up to is very obvious. He wants to recreate the Soviet Union. He thinks the collapse of the Soviet Union was a terrible geopolitical disaster for Russians, and he's trying to build it back. And that's why it's vital that he is stopped, and why it's such a monstrous act what he's doing at the moment in the Ukraine. 
before we get on to the, the, the very present day, I did, the one last thing I wanted to ask you about was, was Yeltsin, because you write about him a lot in, in the book as well. Well, he, he's a complex figure. I could talk about him as a free spirit. Yeltsin is responsible, I think, for the revolution holding, and he was a great figure. There's no doubt about it. The trouble was he was drunk a very large portion of the time, in part because he was in considerable pain from his back and the alcohol dulled the pain, but he was an alcoholic. And he was um, prone at times to losing the plot a bit. He uh, wasn't the ideal politician. He was the only politician that could have got Russia Federation formed and he declared himself president. And you may remember that was the moment when Ukraine came into uh, the reckoning as an independent country. And that shot down any hope Gorbachev had of put, stitching together a sort of semi-Soviet Union. And it was a crucial decision. Of course, it was Yeltsin who brought Putin into his family and into his uh, political grouping as a very young man and gave him responsibility. And I think he first began to realize that this was a toughie. Uh, when Yeltsin was ill, after having won the election, he knew that his days were numbered and major heart surgery. He feared, having shelled the White House, uh, Parliament, that he would be vulnerable to being charged with treason and sent to jail and maybe even hung. So he was always looking for somebody who would protect him when he had to retire. He tried two prime ministers and judged they were both weak. And that was when he appointed Putin, having put him into one of the reformed elements of the KGB. And uh, it will forever be held against Yeltsin that he made the running for Putin. Without his support, Putin would never have appeared as such a major figure. And was Yeltsin someone that Britain, you know, would have thought they could work with? Because, of course, Thatcher and Gorbachev had had this really quite warm relationship. Was Yeltsin seen as an extension of that? Yes, but not in the same way. I was really John Major, who was responsible for Yeltsin feelings about Britain, when lots of people were hedging their bets, left open which side was going to win and waited Major came out strongly for Yeltsin, and Yeltsin never forgot it. And he treated uh, John Major and the British as real friends. And I worked with him when I was in the Balkans, trying to, as the EU negotiator, try to bring peace to the Balkans. And uh, Yeltsin was extremely helpful. We had a very sizable UN peacekeeping element from Russian troops. And uh, I think that, he was a great man, but he made some mistakes. He allowed the army to deteriorate very badly, and they lost their morale. And then he went on the bandstand in Berlin at a very solemn ceremony where there was a permanent memorial for all the Russians who had lost their lives coming in and freeing Berlin. And he was pissed and he went and started to conduct the orchestra. And at that time, he lost a lot of support amongst his Russian friends. They really hated seeing Yeltsin drunk on that occasion and felt it demeaned the military, and the military never forgave him for it. And, of course, Putin learned his lesson. He knew that 
his position in power would depend on having a protection. And in this case, he could rely to some extent on ex-KGB, but he spent money on the Russian military, very poor morale and very poor equipped. And now it's a very effective force, as we will see, in and around the Ukraine. And uh, it is probably now the only bulwark around Putin that will save him from, uh, I think, when the mood changes of Russians and they realize what they're doing to their fellow Slavs in uh, Ukraine, it will not be easy for Putin. Putin's riding high at the moment, but he's embarked on, a, in my view, not only an illegal venture, but a very foolish venture. Britain did try, and the West did try for a, for a while with Putin to uh, to maintain the positive relationship that had been developed under Gorbachev and then Yeltsin, didn't it? Yeah, I, I, in 2003, I was then the uh, chairman of UCOS International, the trying to expand its UCOS's investments overseas, but it was the largest and most efficient oil company in Russia and indeed in the world under Khodorkovsky. And uh, who was at the state banquet at Buckingham Palace? But Putin. And my wife and I were asked, I don't think any because I was foreign secretary, but more because of my position then in UCOS. And he then went to visit BP and agreed that BP should make a heavy investment in Russia. So we were seeing, a very even in 2003, warm relations with Putin. You should not forget that. And how, why did the Putin relationship deteriorate? We should ask ourselves that. And we need to ask ourselves whether we got the expansion of NATO right. And I don't think we did, frankly. But it's no use crying over silk milk. But in 2008, George W. Bush and Tony Blair committed NATO to allowing uh, Ukraine and Georgia to come into the NATO alliance. Up, up until then, it had been left an open question. And in fact, at one time, Merkel had argued very strongly against it. Now, the historians will definitely say this was a mistake, that this should have been handled in a different way. It doesn't justify what uh, Putin has done one little bit, far from it, his naked invasion of a democratic country and people who have got very close links with Russia. You know, many people who were in Ukraine felt that they were part of Russia, and they were part of Russia in many respects. And that will start to feedback on uh, Putin. But I, I, I think we've got to recognize we missed some opportunities, both with Yeltsin and with Putin. At one stage, he was in favor of investments. And, you know, he was even a member of G7. It was called G8 for a while. And then after he invaded Ukraine, his membership was cut off from G8. Putin has been a long time in following what he wants to do, which is to rebuild the Soviet Union. That's what he wants to do. That's why he's invaded Ukraine and why, given half a chance, he'd invade Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. You've got to watch very carefully. It's a very, very dangerous situation we're in. And I'm extremely pleased to see President Biden and his Secretary of State behaving, in my view, very well indeed as the leaders of the 
NATO coalition and explaining what's happened, encouraging the Germans, building the case for strong economic sanctions. NATO is a defensive organization, but we certainly can and should help Ukraine in every possible way. It's going to be a very, very difficult few years ahead. And if Putin remains there, he is a man who has got his finger on many nuclear buttons. And judging from his performance and his mentality, it's perfectly possible he might do it. We should look very carefully at his character. He is contemptuous of most of NATO and its countries. He is a man who is now in a position where there's no Politburo in the old communist way of making collective decisions. He's got rid of any form of Politburo, any form of government. If you watched him in this strange large room talking to the security advisors, so-called, it was an extraordinary performance. Putin rounded on him in public showed that he had nothing but contempt for his own military advisers. He is an effectively an autocratic dictator, quite unlike Yeltsin, quite unlike the uh, Russia that came out of the fall of the Berlin Wall. He is aggressive. I don't think the Putin that we see now is the same Putin who we saw in the early days of his time in St. Petersburg and then coming to Moscow and working under uh, Yeltsin. Uh, and I think he is capable of making some very, very dangerous decisions. And we've got to be very united, careful, and tough in dealing with Putin. We're not dealing with the same man that we dealt with in the early years of this century. My last question, when you look back on the whole 200-year sweep that we've been talking about, of British-Russian relations. How big a moment is this? Is this as low as they've ever been? I hesitate. You know, I'm always nervous about saying something is the deepest. I mean, I think we have to admit that when Stalin was still in charge of Russia after the Second World War and had developed nuclear weapons, there was a very real risk of a nuclear war. And that's when we thought of having shelters, and we were very, very, very worried that Stalin could engage us in a nuclear war for a period. And it was not really until Brezhnev that that began slowly to become less likely. But even then, there were moments of serious concern. And now I think we're right back into that picture, that a Russian uh, dictator has his finger on a nuclear trigger, and if cornered and if left with no exit, could act unreasonably. And we've always got to remember Kennedy's skillful handling of Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And how much we disapprove of Putin, we've got to understand his mind frame, and it's a dangerous one. I don't think he's mad, and I think we should never use those sort of words. He's not. He's calculating risk. But he's calculating risk in a way that is dangerous. And if we can let him down, if we can find a way of getting back into an overall security conference for the whole of Europe, put all of these boundaries into the mix and reach some accommodation um, and areas of dispute, 
not just over Crimea and over Ukraine or even Georgia, but over Kosovo and other areas where we have disputes and try to pull Russia back. So I'm, don't ever give up on diplomacy. Don't ever give up on negotiations. Never say to yourself, we can never deal with Putin. You might have to. But you only deal with him when he knows that you've defeated him. You've stopped him doing what he wanted to do. And that's the time when you've got to keep an open mind. We don't have the luxury of being able to say, we'll never again talk to this man. He has his fingers quite close to a nuclear button, and that would be a far worse destination for the world and for all of us in Europe. So that's David Owen, grandee politician, diplomat, businessman, historian. What struck me most coming away from our conversation was just how gravely a man of such experience views the current situation and how much worse he fears things could yet become. Perhaps the only consolation we can take from the history books this week is how many times in the past Anglo-Russian relations have swiftly and unexpectedly changed course. It's a fragile hope to cling to as we brace ourselves for the dark days in Europe that lie ahead. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really meant to be time-sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might like. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>